Amen. Good to have a seat. Good morning, Harvest. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Andrew Watkins. I have the privilege of serving here at Harvest as an associate pastor. And whether you're joining us in person this morning, you have braved the rain outside, which all of us uh, pollen allergy people are thankful for the rain outside, are we not? Uh, or you're tuning us, uh, joining us online this morning. We're so thankful that you've chosen to spend part of your Sunday morning with us. Uh, if, as Dan said, if, if you're visiting with us, we want to get to know you, to love you, to serve you any way that we can. And so if you are a first-time guest, find somebody with a, a, a name tag after the service and uh, they've got a gift for you, and we would just love to get to know you any way we can. But let's go ahead and get into God's Word together this morning. So uh, if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles or your phones or whatever it is that you tend to use to get your eyes on God's Word. And would you meet me in Hebrews chapter 11 this morning? We're to be in Hebrews 11 verses 5 and 6 as we continue our Step Out in Faith sermon series where we're examining the lives of the people that we see in the Hebrews 11 Faith Hall of Fame. Uh, Our purpose throughout the series is to, uh, as very real people living in real times facing real things, to look at the lives of other very real people in very real times facing very real things that God holds up to for us as examples of what it looks like to live by faith. Because we want to be stirred up to live by faith. And so this morning, as we do that, we're going to look at the life of a man named Enoch. We're going to do a little more jumping around in our Bibles this morning than normal. So uh, if, if you be ready for that, if you want, you can go ahead and stick some bookmarks in Genesis 5 and the book of Jude, if you would like. Uh, but even if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we would really encourage you and invite you to follow along with us as we look to God's word And there's a couple ways you could do that. You could just pull out your phone and Google, uh, starting with Hebrews 11, uh, and it'll pop right up for you. Or if you would prefer a paper copy of God's Word, we have some on the table in the back, uh, and we would love to just uh, give you one of those. If you don't have one at all, keep it as our gift to you. Uh, But Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6 this morning, and even if you're still making your way there, I want to go ahead and read it for us, and then we'll pray for our time together in God's Word. But Hebrews 11, 5 and 6 says this, by faith... Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let me pray as we look to God's word together this morning. Father, uh, we do wholeheartedly believe that every single word of scripture is inerrant and inspired by your Holy Spirit, and that it's profitable for doctrine and reproof and training in righteousness, every word of it. And so we ask now as we turn to Hebrews and Genesis and Jude, Father, that your spirit would be present among us, that it would be working in us and to uh, encourage us, to challenge us, to equip us, to grow us, to look more like your son, Jesus Christ. Father, would you help us to live lives that are pleasing to you as we seek to, to walk by faith in this life in a very real time? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, Cooperstown, New York is where they say that baseball players go to be immortalized. Of course, not in the literal sense of the word, but it's where their legacies live on. Uh, Cooperstown, New York is home to the Baseball Hall of Fame, and in the Hall of Fame, you'll find a plaque gallery of 342 and counting of the greatest players, managers, baseball executives, and yes, somehow even umpires that the game has ever seen. Some of those players are remembered for the highlights, the the moments of brilliance throughout their careers that, that live on as legend. Other players are simply remembered for their longevity and, and dependability. 
Again, some of them were, were superstars. They were the players that, that made the, the morning newspapers when newspapers were a thing, and they made the, the highlight reels at night, but others were just putting together solid, steady careers over a long period of time. I got to visit the Hall of Fame as a child, but my favorite player was still playing at that time. And so a few years ago, when I first became a pastor and we lived in upstate New York, uh, I could not wait to go back to the Hall of Fame. More specifically, I couldn't wait to get to the plaque gallery and see the plaque of my childhood hero hanging on the wall. So in case you've never been there, each plaque has the player's picture, his name, the team that he played for, and a brief description of, of how he ended up securing his spot in baseball history. And so when we entered the plaque galleries of family, that first time after I, it had been 20 plus years since I had been there, I went searching for his plaque, and when I found it, here's what it said. It said, Calvin Edwin Ripken Jr., Baltimore, American League, 1981 to 2001 arrived at the ballpark every day with a burning desire to perform at the highest level. Dedication and work ethic resulted in a record 2,632 consecutive games played from May 30th, 1982 through September 19th, 1998, earning him the title of baseball's Iron Man. In 21 seasons, he collected 3,184 hits, 431 home runs, and was named to 19 consecutive All-Star teams. Won Rookie of the Year, two MVPs, two Gold Glove Awards, and his Orioles won the 1983 World Series. Like I said, some players were superstars, but others just put together solid and steady careers for a really long time. That was Cal. Don't get me wrong, he was a great player in his own right, but but he was never the superstar. He was not the guy that they were going to put on the video game covers. He wasn't cool, he wasn't flashy, he was never the face of baseball. He was just the normal guy who showed up for work every day just like everybody else. Throughout his career, he was a picture of faithfulness and reliability. In a lot of ways, that's what endeared him to baseball fans. Fans identified with him because unlike the superstars of that era who seemed to do almost superhuman things with a ball and a bat, there's a way in which when you looked at Cal, you could look at him and say, I I can do that. I can be like him. I can show up for work. I can can put in the work and I I can do what he's doing kind of in my context. I can be faithful. If I may, I think Enoch in Hebrews 11 is the Cal Ripken Jr. of Hebrews 11. Because he, just like some people in the Baseball Hall of Fame, are remembered more for their well, well-known moments of greatness than they are for long-term stability or faithfulness. The same is true of Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith. Some of the people in Hebrews 11 are known for doing things that almost seem superhuman to us. Like their stories, though 100% historically true, seem like the stuff of legend to us. Take Noah, for instance. The story of Noah happened over a long period of time, but, but he's known more for his highlight reel moment of a boat full of animals in a flood, right? Of course that happened, that's, but that's the stuff that makes the news. That's the, that's the stuff that ends up in children's Bibles, stuff like Enoch does not. Then there's Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, betrayed by his boss, and ends up in the second in command in Egypt and saving people from a famine. And again, it's a 100% true story but it seems more like something that we would watch in a movie than something that's likely to happen to us at work this week. Then there's Abraham and Moses and David and all kinds of incredible stories of people living by faith and God doing massive things in and through their lives. And for sure, these are heroes to us. For sure, there's much that we can learn for their lives. For sure, there's, there's great stories of faith to be found there. But I like Enoch. To be honest, scripture doesn't tell us a whole lot about Enoch. And quite honestly, that's, that's made studying his life somewhat challenging. There's a lot of blanks left unfilled. There's a lot of questions left unanswered. But piecing together what we do know, here's why I like Enoch. 
I think he's the normal guy in Hebrews 11 that we can identify with. He's the Cal Ripken Jr. among superstars. He's the, the, he's the guy who wears a hard hat to work and the soldier who drives on base every morning before the sun comes up. He's the parent who packs their, their kid's lunch after a long, hard day at work for the next day and the guy who, who needs an afternoon coffee to make it through the next meeting. In other words, he's a man who walked by faith through the everyday normal ups and downs and highs and lows and joys and struggles of daily life. And not only can we learn from him, but we can be like him. Like we can do this. His life and legacy are well within reach for us. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's our big idea this morning. Our, our, our main takeaway from the life of Enoch as we see it in Hebrews 11 and some other places in scripture. Our big idea this morning is this. God is pleased by those who faithfully walk with him. But God is pleased by those who faithfully walk with him. That's what the life of Enoch teaches us. See, not too, too long ago in his retirement years, Cal Ripken Jr. wrote a book called Just Show Up, where he shares some, some stories and secrets of his journey to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And, and I think Enoch would like that book. I think there's a lot that he can identify with in it about his own journey to the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, but I think that he would say it falls short of what scripture calls us to if we're going to live lives faithfully walking with God. I think that Enoch would say, yes, of course, we, we must show up. Walking with God is not less than showing up, but we can't just show up. If we're going to live by faith and walk with God in a way that pleases him, we can't just show up. We must both show up and step out. That's what we're looking at through this series in Hebrews 11. We must step out in faith. That's what scripture calls us to. That's what we see in the life of Enoch and from his life. I want us to see two ways this morning that we're called to step out in faith as well. And, and here's the first, step out by seeking God constantly. We're to step out by seeking God constantly. As you make your, if you would make your way over to Genesis 5 in a moment, and while you're turning there, I want to remind us what Hebrews 11, 5 says, that, that Enoch was commended to us as having pleased God. So he's for sure someone we want to learn from. He's for sure an example that, that's being held up for us. We, and we get some insight into why Enoch was commended from the end of verse 6 in Hebrews 11, where the author of Hebrews says that whoever would draw near to God must believe that he, that's God, rewards those who seek him. And then if you have your Bibles open to Genesis 5, look at verses 21 through 24 in Genesis 5, and, and here's what the author of Genesis says about Enoch's life. It says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. So just to sum it all up, there's a, there's, again, there's a lot that we don't know about Enoch. Let's go ahead and acknowledge that. But here's what we do know. He was a father. Became a father when he was 65 years old. Clearly, he was also a husband. He lived on this earth for 365 years. And what Genesis really, 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 really wants us to know is that he walked with God. And that's abundantly clear, right? Like it says it multiple times, both in verse 22 and 24, that Enoch walked with God so much so that he didn't die. God just took him. And we'll, we'll deal with that later on. But what I really want us to focus on first is that Enoch walked with God. And in the, in the, the words of Hebrews eleven six, clearly Enoch's walk with God was characterized by cons constantly seeking after God. 
that's what we know about Enoch. And since that's pretty much all the text says, that's pretty much all we know about Enoch. Maybe you're like, well, well now what, Andrew? Like we've kind of covered everything. So, so what do we do now? Well, trust me, I, I feel that. I felt that this week as I've studied his life. But as 2 Timothy 2 says, again, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for us. So there is, there's a benefit for us to be had here. So here's the plan. Let's, let's really get an understanding of what it means to walk with God. Let's get an understanding of what it means to, to seek God constantly. Let's, let's connect the two, and then let's talk about what it would look like for us. Because we want to live lives that are pleasing to God, right? We, we want to be a church full of people who faithfully walk with God, do we not? So, so what does it mean to walk with God? We use that terminology a lot, don't we? With, we, we, we even in our own church, we, we have the, the three W's to, to worship Christ and walk with Christ and work for Christ. So we, we're familiar with this language. When we're checking in with one another, we ask ourselves, like, hey, how's your, how's your walk with Christ going this week? It's familiar language for us, but if the, the risk is that if we're not incredibly clear about what it means to walk with God or to walk with Christ, then the risk is that we will miss how, virtu- how vitally important it is and how deeply we ought to seek it. And our answers then when we're asked, well, hey, how's your walk with Christ going? will end up being as shallow as the answer to the typical question of, hey, how's your week going? Like, it's okay. How's your walk with Christ? It's, it's fine. It's normal. You know, life happens. It's, it's going on. So, so what does it mean to walk with God? Well, it's true in all of scripture, but the book of Genesis in particular is filled with literary intentionality. Like no word, no phrase is wasted in Genesis. And that's especially true of Genesis 5 as well. So when it says that Enoch walked with God, the particular verb form here is pointing back to the Garden of Eden where God would walk and talk with Adam and Eve and commune with them in fellowship that was unhindered by sin. But you know the story, right? Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They sinned. They plunged the world into sin and it separated them from God. It, it, it ruined that unhindered fellowship and for them and for all of humanity. But the picture still remains. Enoch walked with God. As close as possible as, as what it was like for, for Adam and Eve to walk with God, Enoch walked with God. Except for, for unlike them before the fall and just like us after the fall, Enoch was a sinner who still had to live in a broken world and face the frustrations and the struggles of parenting and relationships and neighbors and coworkers and and all of that stuff. He, He was a sinner, so let's acknowledge that. But still, he walked with God. And so can we. We're called to walk with God. To walk with God is to live in such a way that to the best of your ability, you are never disconnected from him. You don't go your own way and say, oh, you know what, you, you go on up ahead, God, I'll catch up with you later in the day. I'm going to take a break to myself. No, it's to live with a conscious understanding of the fact that wherever you go, God goes. Wherever you stay, God stays. Wherever you are, God is. It's to have him present with you both in the boardroom and the break room at work. It's to, to have him sitting with you in the doctor's office as you're waiting for results. It's to have him present with you as you drive and you're getting cut off by the person who you don't think knows how to drive. It's to, it's to have him with you as you're parenting the children that are, doing the, that are pushing the limits for the 15th time this week. It's to be acutely aware of his immediate presence, nonstop, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. But here's the thing, to truly walk with God means that you don't just have him there as a passive observer. It's to to truly walk with him means that not only are you aware that he's there, but you're constantly seeking him about what you're doing there. 
It's not just to acknowledge that, yeah, he's over here, he's with me, he's present, he's hanging around. It's, this, it's to live in a way that you've got to be seeking him to find out what you ought to be doing there. And friends, this is where we come up short. This is where we have to grow. Far too often, we're happy to have God tag along with us, but we certainly don't want him meddling in our lives. We don't want him too involved in what's going on because, because deep down inside, we, we don't want Jew, Jesus ruining the moment. Of course, we would never say that out loud. It, it, it should be making us cringe even as we, as we hear that, but the reality is that's how a lot of us live. We don't want Jesus ruining the moment of our lives. We don't want him meddling in what, what we have planned. But the reality is when we truly seek God about every aspect of our lives and then actually live like he would have us to live, things might get a little uncomfortable. Our relationships might get a little more awkward. Our finances might get a little tighter. Our, our social media feeds might get a little shorter. We might want to be more careful about specific words that, that we choose and how we talk to people. A lot of things might have to change and not in ways that come naturally to us in our flesh, not in, not in ways that are comfortable to us, not in ways that, that we want. But what if pleasing God, as the text says, was characteristic of, of Enoch's life. What if pleasing God was really our top priority? Growing up, maybe you've heard this phrase before, growing up, uh, there was a man that I knew that would constantly say this phrase over and over and over again to the point where as a teenager, like it's, it's annoying, like knock it off. But as an adult, I see the wisdom in it. He would constantly say the phrase, there's, there's just two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. Just two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self over and over and over again. And friends, what if we ran every decision of every situation in our lives through that filter of there's just two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self? What if we ran every decision through that filter with the the predetermined non-negotiable that we will do what pleases God and not what is most pleasing to ourselves? That's what it means to seek God constantly. That's what presumably Enoch was doing with his life. So let's be more specific and ask ourselves the question, well, what does that mean for us? Where and how do we apply that metric of pleasing God or pleasing self? Well, let's talk about the where first. Where do we apply this? Where, what specific areas of my life do I need to think about pleasing God or pleasing self? And and obviously the answer to that question is all of them, right? We, it's not hard to say it should be every area of our lives, but that's not all that helpful. So let's try to be a little more specific. Let's try to acknowledge that, that so much of this comes down to, to, to having wisdom in the gray areas. Because here's the thing, it's not all that hard to determine whether or not something's pleasing to God or pleasing to self when it's, when it's a matter that scripture is black and white, clear as day on. Like that's, that's pretty obvious, but what about the gray areas where we need to exercise godly biblical wisdom? That's so often where it gets challenging to walk with God. That's where we need to seek him the most. So here's some examples. So as you sit there and stare at the screen at night and, and jokes are made and sin is celebrated and temptations are visible to you, literally, you might need to hit the pause button, seek God and ask yourself, is what I'm watching right now pleasing to God or is it just feeding into my flesh right now? As you sit down to balance the budget and you see bills unfolding and you read the credit card statements and you remember that God has called you to both provide wisely for your family and also give generously and you're also trying to squeeze in some other hobbies and things like that, maybe you need to hit the pause button and seek God and ask yourself, is how I'm handling my finances according to biblical wisdom? Am I dealing with debt wisely and biblical and is it pleasing to God or is it pleasing to myself and what I want? 
And as you sit down to think about major life decisions, anywhere from who to get married to or where to live or what company to work for, you might need to hit the pause button and seek God and ask yourself, is how I'm approaching this decision-making progress on, on things that may not be completely right or wrong, they may not be sin or not sin, is how I'm approaching these decisions wise and is it pleasing to God or is it pleasing to myself? Because the point again is God is pleased by those who faithfully walk with him. And that means in every area of our lives, from the smallest, most seemingly insignificant and routine decisions where, where, where no one is looking to the biggest, most pivotal decisions of life where what you choose will be obvious to everyone. What, we must be seeking God and following his direction in all things, but, but how? How do we seek him? How do we seek him constantly? Where do we gain this biblical wisdom and, and how do we evaluate whether or not something is pleasing to God or pleasing to self. Well, well, here's three crucial ways that we can directly apply. Here's, here's how we get biblical wisdom. Here's how we determine what's pleasing to God or pleasing self. First, read God's word. Read God's word. Obviously, that'll answer the, the black and white questions of, is what I'm doing a sin or not a sin? But, but specifically, read God's word with an eye towards seeking wisdom and seeking guidance. So here's a challenge for us to take. You know, tomorrow begins a new month. Can you believe it's almost May? But, but May has 31 days. Proverbs has 31 chapters. Proverbs is the wisdom, like the prime wisdom book of the Bible. So, so here's a challenge for us. Maybe, maybe take the month of May and every single day read a chapter in Proverbs seeking biblical wisdom that you can actually apply immediately to your life. Read a chapter a day with a pen and a, and a notebook in hand, and as you're reading, write down one or two wisdom things, whether it's about relationships or finances or the company that you keep or the decisions that you're making. Write that down and apply it that day and see if at the end of the month that makes a difference in your walk with God. Seek wisdom. Read God's word. Second, listen to the Holy Spirit. Want wisdom that, that pleases God? James 1.5 says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. It's really that simple. Ask God who gives generously all, to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So don't just read your Bibles, though, again, don't skip the step of reading your Bibles, but don't just read them. Pray, seek God. Ask him for wisdom and discernment, not just to the major decisions of life, but in the minor ones too. Ask him to help you see things clearly and to know accurately if the, the choices that you're making are pleasing to him or pleasing to yourself at the end of the day. And as you listen, then the question is, well, how do I know if, if what you're sensing as the Holy Spirit's leading is, is actually what the Holy Spirit's saying instead of what you just want him to say? Well, well if, if you're questioning that, refer back to number one, because here's the reality. Scripture and the Holy Spirit will never contradict each other. So trust me, you can convince yourself that the Holy Spirit's telling you all kinds of things that he is not actually telling you and so refer back to God's word. They will never contradict because if it doesn't match up, it's not the Holy Spirit's leading. So read God's word, listen to the Holy Spirit. And third, ask around in community. Ask around in community. We, we talk a ton, especially here at Harvest, about how important it is to live in biblical community. And here's a major reason why. Biblical community can help you gain biblical wisdom and live by it in a way that pleases God. But here's the thing, in order for that to happen, in order for you to, to people to help you live in a way that's pleasing to God, you can't just show up at small group and announce what you've already done. You gotta show up and talk about what you're thinking about doing. You gotta show up and ask around in community. You gotta show up and have the conversation to say, here's the, here's the decision I'm facing. Here's what I'm thinking is wise. Here's what I'm thinking might be the, the, the leading of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I think might be pleasing to the Lord. But, but what do you guys think? Like, help me see what I'm not seeing here. 
In other words, ask before you decide instead of announcing what you did. And yes, all of that requires stepping out in faith. Maybe that's the step that that you need to take this morning. Faithfully walking God in a way that is pleasing to him takes more than just showing up and at church. It takes more than just showing up at small group. It takes, and, and playing some, some game for religious appearance. It takes leaning in and stepping out. It takes stepping out in faith to seek God constantly instead of living on a whim. It takes seeking God instead of stumbling through life and dealing with the consequences later. It takes stepping out in faith and seeking him God ahead of the fact. It takes stepping out in faith and humbling yourselves and being vulnerable to say, listen, I don't have all the answers. I can't chart my own course in life. So I'm going to start filtering every decision through the filter of, is it pleasing to God? And is it pleasing to self? And where does God's word fit in that? What does the Holy Spirit have to say about that? Everywhere from the the choices on TV to the choices of my career, because I want to please God instead of pleasing self. Friends, living a life that is pleasing to God happens one moment at a time. So step out and seek God constantly. Think about that. Enoch lived for 365 years. That's a lot of single moments. That's a lot of daily decisions. That's a lot of, should I do this or should I do that? That's a lot of, would this be pleasing to God or would that be pleasing to God? Enoch lived for 365 years. Let's get after it. Let's seek God constantly. That's what Enoch did, but, but that's not all that he did because the second way that we're called to step out is to step out by standing for God courageously to step out by standing for God courageously. We see that in Enoch's life in the middle of Hebrews eleven six, and part of the book of Jude. So if you'd like, go ahead and make your way over to the book of Jude right before the book of Revelation, and we'll get to that in a minute. But it's no secret that we live in a culture that is increasingly corrupt. It's not hard to, to look around and figure out that we live in a culture that is opposed to the God of the Bible. And it's not shocking to know from any number of places in scripture that we as God's people have been called to step out in faith and stand for God courageously. That was Enoch's culture and his calling, and ours is no different. Even though the account of his life in Genesis is is found only two chapters after that humanity's fallen to sin, a lot of moral decay can happen in two chapters. I mean, according to last week, we looked at the life of Cain and Abel. It only only took one chapter and one generation after the fall for the first murder to happen when Cain killed Abel. And we looked at that last week. And then in Genesis 4 also tells us about the life of a man named Lamech who who was in the same generation as Enoch. He was the seventh generation from from Adam. And in Genesis 4, 23 and 24, this man openly brags about murder and polygamy. And even though Genesis 5 covers a lot of time and many, many years, by the time chapter 6 rolls around in Genesis, with Enoch's great-grandson Noah, we know that story. God is ready to destroy the entire world with a flood because of the wickedness of humanity. So Enoch lived in a wicked culture that didn't care about the fact that there is a God who rules over all. And in his culture, much like ours, people were going to do whatever they wanted to do, whenever they wanted to do it, and with or to whoever they wanted to do it with or to. Like, we can relate to that, can't we? That's what we see when we turn on the news. That's the, the culture that we live in. That's the kind of culture that Enoch walked with God in. That's the kind of culture that he had to constantly seek God's face in order to figure out how do I live wisely in, in a way that's pleasing to God. But see, he wasn't called to lock himself away in a bomb shelter to avoid it all. No, God has always had a people that he was calling to step out and stand for him courageously in the middle of it all. That was Enoch's call. That was him then, and that's us now. Now, I get that it's incredibly intimidating to think about being called to step out and stand for God courageously in our day. 
When we think about standing courageously, we, we're tempted to, to think that means that we have to be ready to debate all kinds of people on all kinds of incredibly complex ethical issues that, quite honestly, we're not so sure we completely understand. We're tempted to think that means we have to have an answer for every question and every objection that's raised on lots of topics that we feel completely unprepared to talk about. There's a place for that. There's, there's people that have given their lives to doing that sort of thing. But, but really what most of us in this room are called to is way simpler than that. If we're going to stand for God courageously like Enoch did, really all we have to do is remember that God exists as he says he exists and understand that sin is serious. If we can manage to do, to do those two things, we'll be well on our way to standing for God courageously in a culture that's corrupt just like Enoch did. So, so let's take a closer look at those two things. Here's how to stand for God in a culture that's corrupt. First, remember that God exists. That simple. Remember that God exists. Hebrews eleven six. it says that whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. That alone does not sound all that controversial, right? The point, isn't here, the point here isn't just to believe that he exists. It's to believe him as he says he exists. It's one thing to say that you believe in God. That alone will not get you in a whole lot of trouble in, in really any culture. But it's another thing entirely to believe in the God of the Bible as he has revealed himself. Plenty of people who say they believe in and even worship God really only believe in and worship a God of their own imagination, a God of their own creation who somehow never disagrees with him. They never find themselves in conflict with him. You know why? Because in reality, they're worshiping themselves. They've created a God in their minds to get what they want. But if we're going to stand for God courageously, we must be abundantly clear both with ourselves and the world around us about some things. We've got to be clear that there is only one God, that he is completely holy and exists eternally in three distinct persons who has revealed himself on the pages of scripture and to whom we are fully accountable for everything. And that means that if we're going to stand for God in a culture that's corrupt, not only must we remember that he exists, and again, as he says he exists, but second, we must also understand that sin is serious in his eyes. That sin is serious. If you turned your Bibles over to Jude a few minutes ago, look with me at verses 14 through 16 in the book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation. Jude is writing to confront false teachers. He's writing to confront those who have denied God and said, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. I don't, I don't need any of that anymore. And at the end of his short letter, he references Enoch. And here's what he says. He says this. He says, it was about these that Enoch... The seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds and of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. That was Enoch's message to a corrupt culture. Because Enoch had sought and walked with God, he knew that God exists and he knew him as he exists. He, he knew God properly as, as, as holy and perfect and just. So, so because of that, Enoch understood that sin is serious. Because listen, the closer that you walk with God, the more accurately you'll see sin for what it is. 
And the further away at any given moment that you are from your walk with God, the more blurry everything becomes, the, the more unclear everything about sin is. Don't miss that because that's key here. That's key for us if we're gonna walk with God. Enoch knew the seriousness of, of sin because he, he closely he walked with God and, and, and for sure that would have led him to, A, dealing with sin in his own life when he saw it coming up, but it also would have led him to, to see sin clearly in the culture and, and to talk about it to the people around him. But so many of us are living such casual relationships with God that we are far more concerned about our appearances before the world than we are about our appearance before God. We want to fit in, so we're, we're quick to let sin slide. We're, we're quick to laugh it off and say, you know what, I deserved that one. We'll gossip if it'll gain us a friend. We'll, we'll grumble if it'll get us a crowd. We'll, we'll brag if it'll bring us attention. And I mention these things because they seem so harmless. They seem so small and insignificant in the grand scheme of things, but those are some of the very things that Enoch labels as ungodly four times in two verses in the book of Jude. That's what Enoch says God is going to come and execute judgment on. So make no mistake, all sin is serious. And if you're going to stand courageously for God, you must stand against sin, both in your own life to root it out and kill sin. There's an old quote by a Puritan that says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. But stand against sin both in your own life and in the world around you. So then it leads us to the natural question of how. How do we stand against sin? Once we remember that God exists and understood the seriousness of sin, practically speaking, how do we stand against sin in this world? What does that, what does that look like for us as Harvest Bible Chapel Annapolis right now? Because I think sometimes when we read things like this, our minds immediately go to, okay, well, if I'm going to stand against sin like Enoch, then I've got to get a bullhorn sin on a street corner and start just screaming at people. I've got to pick it and protest and bang my fist. I've got to do all these kinds of things. No, that's, that's, not, that's not what we have to do. So here's what it means to stand for God courageously in our context. Here's what it looks like. It looks like coffee with a friend who grew up with ch- in church with you, but has since walked away to sit down with him and say, hey, I, I know you've heard about the true God. We, we grew up together, but as I watch your life, I'm concerned about some of the things that I'm seeing. Because I love you and care about you, can, 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 we, can we talk about that? Can we talk about what I'm seeing? It's gentle and caring. It looks like a backyard barbecue with a Muslim neighbor when you invite them over and say, hey, I value your friendship. I love living next to you. It's, you've become a great friend. So, and I know you have some thoughts about God. So can we sit down and have a barbecue and, and talk about the one true God? It's kind, but it's bold. It won't shy away from the truth. It looks like sitting down with your boss to say, you know what, I, I can't do things that way anymore because I don't think it's right. And if you're willing to listen and you have a minute, I, I'd love to share with you why I, why I think that way because it's respectful, but it's firm. Because God is serious about sin. If we're gonna walk faithfully with him, we'll step out in faith and embrace God's mission and have those conversations. But listen, we never have to have them without grace either in tone or in content, grace must be involved in both. See, yes, God is serious about sin. So much so that that the just and deserved punishment for even just one sin is eternity in a literal, physical place called hell. That's how serious God is about sin. He is holy and he is angry about sin, but he's also a God of mercy and grace who sent his only son to live the perfect life we could never live and then die the death we deserve in order to absorb God's, absorb God's wrath against our sin. 
Because make no mistake, God's wrath against our sin will be satisfied either by us for eternity in hell or it was satisfied by Jesus Christ on the cross in our place. And so when we sit down to stand courageously against sin, we don't have to do it without being able to offer hope to the people that we're talking to. We can sit down with them and say, yes, God is angry about sin, but he also loves you so much that he's already paid the penalty for your sin. And he's offering grace to you right now if you'll just repent or turn from your sins and then walk with him. And you can say, I just met a guy in, in scripture named Enoch who, who spent his life walking with God. And even if you're listening this morning right now and you've never done that, I, I want you to know that God's free gift of salvation is available to you right now. And there's no better time to accept it than this morning. And so if you have any questions about the gospel, we'd love to talk with you after the service. But friends, scripture is clear. There's a lot we don't know about Enoch, but one thing we do know is he walked with God. He didn't just show up. He didn't just play some religious games. He stepped out in faith. He sought God constantly and he stood for God courageously and God was pleased because he faithfully walked with him. Enoch was found faithful. Will you be found faithful? Maybe you've been wondering if I was going to get to this, but probably the most extraordinary thing about the life of Enoch is that he is one of only two people in human history who never had to die. It's just Enoch and Elijah who had the privilege of avoiding death, and you can read how it happened for Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2. But for, for Enoch, all we're told in Genesis 5 is that Enoch walked with God, then he was not, for God took him. Then in Hebrews 11:5, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God has taken him. And I won't even begin to speculate what that looked like, but for sure that answer, it raises some questions for us. First, it raises the question, did that, did that really happen? Yes, 100% it happened. We can trust what scripture tells us happened. But second, somewhat jokingly, how do I get on that list? What kind of TSA pre-check is this? Like, how do I skip the line for death and get out of this broken, painful world and just head straight for heaven? Because that sounds like a pretty good deal to me. How, how do I escape it all? Well, I'll just say this. God works in particular ways at particular times for particular reasons with particular people. And we can never presume upon him to deal with us in the same way that he's dealt with others. But I think if we're preoccupied with finding a way to skip the death line and escape this world like Enoch was blessed to be able to do, we're already asking ourselves the wrong questions. Instead of asking, how do I get God to come get me out of this mess? Maybe the more appropriate question for us to wrestle with at the end this morning is to ask ourselves this, am I living right now in a way that is ready for his return? Am I living faithfully right now Am I walking with him in a way that is pleasing to him right now? Am I ready for his return? So the reality is that Jesus will return and he expects to find his people faithful. He expects to find us living like Enoch, seeking him and standing for him. And guess what? His return will not be on our timing and we must be ready. But so many of us hear the story of Enoch's faithfulness and how he walked with God and stepped out in faith and sought God in everything and stood for him boldly. And our, and our reaction to that is to say, yeah, I, I know, I get it. Life's busy. I know I got to make some changes. I know I got to restart my devotions. I know I got to get serious. But man, it's hard right now. I got a lot going on. I'm busy at work. 
stuff going on. And, and if I speak up right now, it's not going to go over so well at work. And I, I just can't afford that right now. I, I'll get to it when I can. I'll step out in faith and I'll get serious about my walk when it's more convenient for me because I can't afford it right now. So that I would lovingly just say, what you can't afford is to be found unfaithful when Jesus returns. What you can't afford is to not be walking with Jesus every moment of every day right now as you're facing the busyness of life. You can't afford to not be walking with him and you certainly can't afford to be found unfaithful when he returns. Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about his return and the importance of being found faithful when he comes. And these are Jesus's words. Matthew 24, he says, therefore you must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him in with the hypocrites and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let me just say, I think it's clear, but that's the exact opposite of living a life that God is pleased with. And friends, Jesus is serious. In the words of Jesus, you are either walking your walk as a faithful and wise servant or as a wicked servant. You're either living like Enoch or you're living like the people that Enoch warned about the wrath of God to come. And so friends, don't just show up. Step out in faith. Be faithful and wise servants, as Jesus says in Matthew 24. Go all in on following Jesus. Walk with him. Seek him in all things, starting right now, and stand for him with courage. Enoch did, because Enoch understood that there's just two choices on the shelf. Just two. There's no middle ground. It's either pleasing God or pleasing self. Let me pray for us as the worship team comes. Father, thank you for the example of faithful men that you give us in Scripture men who have gone before us in a real world, in real struggles, in real life, who for sure we look to as examples, but for sure also had their own struggles. Thank you for their example to us. And God, we just come before you humbly seeking your help because life is busy. Life is hard. There is much going on, Father. And, and our, our vision can get cloudy. So would you help us to see things accurately? you help us to see the importance of living for you every moment of every day from the most seemingly small and insignificant moments to the greatest decisions of our life? Would you help us to seek you, to walk with you, to stand courageously for you? Help us to see ourselves accurately and to see you for who you really are and help us to live according to that, to live lives that are pleasing to you. Be glorified in the worship that we give. In Jesus' name, amen.